In the summer of 1948, Ernst Winder looked over the autopsy of a man who died of cancer. Winder was just a med student at the time, as he stood looking at the deceased 42-year-old man. Yet it was clear that something had gone terribly wrong. Even the young student could see the corpse's swollen lungs were blackened by a sticky tar. The residue made more sense once the patient's widow revealed that her husband had been an avid smoker, two packs a day. The smoking led Winder to wonder if other lung cancer patients had a similar habit. He didn't have any formal training in how to research diseases yet, but Winder had a hunch, and that was powerful. He approached a prominent surgeon named Evarts Graham about putting together a research study. But Graham doubted that cigarettes had anything to do with cancer. He was a big smoker himself, as were over half of American men in the mid-1900s. Winder was sure, though. His hypothesis might be outrageous, but it was worth investigating. So, unable to shake his young pupil's conviction, Graham sponsored the research. Together, they'd compile the habits of over 600 American cigarette smokers. And when they finally assessed their findings, the results were terrifying. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the tobacco industry and its attempts to cover up the dangers of smoking. By the 1960s, overwhelming evidence linked cigarette use to lung cancer and other fatal diseases. In response, tobacco company executives launched a coordinated strategy to undermine science and hide smoking's dangers. Today, we'll talk about cigarettes and how they became a cultural staple in the 20th century. We'll dive into the rise of the technology to mass-produce them and the catchy ad campaigns that proved capable of recruiting new smokers and keeping old ones hooked. Together, they propelled smoking-related illnesses to become the leading cause of preventable death in America. Next time, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories about the tobacco industry, like claims that cigarettes were marketed to children to cultivate long-term customers, or that cigarette makers manipulated nicotine levels to make them more addictive, and finally, that tobacco industry executives lied about the science surrounding the dangers of smoking. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, 
Don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Nowadays, everyone knows that cigarettes are bad for you. The dainty, unassuming sticks come with a laundry list of hazardous side effects, like heart disease, diabetes, and of course, bronchitis. Even their packaging screams warnings of lung, neck, and head cancer. In the U.S., legislation now restricts tobacco companies from advertising any of their products on the radio and TV. High taxes, both state and federal, also accompany these products to dissuade people from buying them. In turn, smoking rates have plummeted from big tobacco's heyday in the 1960s. Yet, even though millions have quit, cigarettes still kill about 480,000 Americans each year. And a lot of that blame sits with the companies behind the product. Throughout the 20th century, tobacco industry executives repeatedly lied about the dangers of smoking. They denied the clear link between cigarettes and fatal diseases, reassuring customers that their products weren't habit-forming. But in reality, that's exactly why cigarettes were so lucrative. And knowing that, Big Tobacco did everything in its power to exploit their addictiveness. Tobacco has a stimulant called nicotine. It lifts your mood when ingested, making you feel a strange combination of relaxed and alert. The effects are only temporary, though. When they wane, you crave more. Those soothing short-term effects made the crop widely popular after indigenous Americans first discovered it. Scholars guess tribes first cultivated tobacco in South America in the Andes Mountains some 4,000 years ago. Across the region, Native Americans found uses for it. Some tribes smoked the leaves for sacred religious ceremonies. 
Others use tobacco medicinally as a balm for everything from depression to earaches. The colonization of the Americas only fueled the crop's popularity. By the time Christopher Columbus brought back dried tobacco leaves from the Bahamas, a gift from the Taino peoples, Europe was hooked. 16th century Europe was rife with praise for tobacco's seemingly magical qualities. Books cited its medicinal value, and some doctors prescribed it as a painkiller for achy joints. Other medical practitioners thought it cured the plague and epilepsy. The French even nicknamed it the plant against evil. It held such power that in 1650, the French ambassador Jean Nicot, who nicotine is named after, sent tobacco seeds to his queen, Catherine de Médicis. The queen was floored. The plant brought her instant relief from her chronic headaches. French nobles soon followed her lead and took up the habit. Before long, ground tobacco, known as snuff, was in high demand across Europe. Because tobacco wasn't just medicinal, it was fun. The French playwright Moliere once wrote, quote, Haven't you noticed how well one treats others after taking it? Tobacco inspires feelings, honor, and virtue. Similarly, Scottish musician Tobias Hume sang about this mellow high, proclaiming that tobacco felt a lot like love. With so many people encouraging tobacco use and little advice to the contrary, it became a cash crop. By 1619, it was Virginia's most profitable export. The colony sent over 40,000 pounds of the crop to England that year alone, and with demand skyrocketing, tobacco sellers wanted cheap labor. So they looked across the Atlantic and hastened America's ugliest legacy. That same year, more than 20 enslaved Africans from present-day Angola arrived in Point Comfort, Virginia. George Yardley, Virginia's governor, bought the enslaved people in exchange for food and supplies. Then he sold the captives into bondage, most likely to wealthy farmers. Over the next century, a vicious cycle grew. Europe's demand for tobacco fueled America's demand for slave labor. By 1630, Virginia's Jamestown settlement exported more than a million and a half pounds of tobacco every year. The Chesapeake region in particular, around Maryland and Virginia, had the perfect climate for cultivating it. Tobacco was so valuable it became a currency, just as good as gold. Plantation owners kept their profits high by relying on forced labor from enslaved Africans. America's obsession with tobacco was a nasty force behind its most wretched institution. Yet abolishing slavery in 1865, which largely supplied the product, did little to stop tobacco's popularity. In fact, a public health crisis was just beginning, thanks to a new way of getting that same tobacco high. And it was as enticing as it was lethal. Prior to the 19th century, there were two primary ways people got their fix chewing and inhaling. Americans tended to chew the leaves. Most Europeans, on the other hand, snorted grated tobacco leaves called snuff. This way, they didn't have the problem that Americans faced, spitting out the leaves. 
Snuff was undeniably lucrative because tobacco entered the bloodstream much faster, making its effects nearly instant. But it also had its drawbacks. As English doctor John Hill noticed, many snuff users had growths that would swell up beneath their nostrils. Others avoided the unsightly nasal flare-ups by simply using tobacco the tried and true way, smoking it. With so many ways for people to get their fix, tobacco use was a worldwide habit by the late 19th century. In the United States alone, the average adult consumed six pounds of it every year. Surprisingly, 56% of that was chewed, and only 1% came from manufactured cigarettes. Cigarettes had always been popular. Variations of them existed for centuries, but they were always hand-rolled. Meaning, companies could only make four or five of them a minute. That was cumbersome and expensive. Seeing an opportunity, in the 1860s, Cuban manufacturer Luis Susini set out to revolutionize cigarette production. His first rolling machine turned out to be pretty unwieldy. Not many cigarette makers took to it. That was until about 15 years later, when an American inventor named James Bonzac came along. He heard about a Virginia cigarette manufacturer offering $75,000, more than $2 million today, to anyone who could build a new, more reliable machine. By 1880, Bonsack had developed a contraption that spun together one long cigarette, then diced it up into smaller-sized portions. Unlike Susini's machine, it made 210 cigarettes a minute, about 48 times the number a human roller could put out. Tobacco companies began integrating the machines into their production lines. This increased production capacity slashed the price of cartons, making them affordable for a wider audience. Smokers couldn't get enough. Their fix was now cheaper and easier to access. Few gave any consideration to how dangerous this new habit actually could be. Coming up, cigarette companies chase after unlikely customers. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands, they saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outdoors like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. 
No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Now back to the story. By the 1900s, tobacco snorters and chewers turned into a much larger and rapidly growing audience, tobacco smokers. Bonzac's machine and the mass production of cigarettes weren't the only reasons for the shift. Cigarettes were also delectable. They used a tobacco blend that boosted sugar and nicotine levels, creating a smoke that was smooth and easy to inhale. Yet another dangerous cycle took root. As users absorbed more nicotine into their bloodstream, they got more of tobacco's addictive qualities. And in turn, smokers wanted more. As Americans showed no signs of slowing their desire for cigarettes, the industry seized a new business opportunity. In 1913, the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company launched their fame brand, Camel. The new product blended burly, bright, and Turkish tobacco leaves for a sweeter taste than other cigarettes on the market. At just a dime per pack of 20, by 1917, they were the most popular cigarette in the U.S. That's also thanks to a massive government supply order. The U.S. had just entered World War I, and officials were keen on boosting morale, so Congress paid to send every soldier off with cigarettes. Then, tobacco companies were able to circle back and run ads suggesting that cigarettes were the product of choice among America's heroes. Take a 1918 ad for cigarettes from another North Carolina brand called Bull Durham. It pictured three smirking soldiers of different ranks bonding over a smoke. It was captioned, The Great American Smoke. Underneath, the slogan went, quote, Fall in line with hundreds of thousands of red-blooded smokers of the good old USA. Smoking wasn't just patriotic, it was how you fit in. Ads like that hit a chord for Americans wanting to do their part. Cigarette consumption soared during World War I. Even Army surgeons praised cigarettes for easing wounded soldiers' pain. But one company realized that smoking wasn't just for men overseas. According to Dr. Robert Jackler, a tobacco researcher, smoking in public was initially considered unladylike. But in 1924, a company called Philip Morris launched its famous Marlboro cigarettes specifically to get the other half of the population smoking. In magazines, the company showcased glamorous, lipstick-wearing models taking drags of their cigarettes. Before long, women were hooked. And tobacco companies held on to their new customers thanks to new health claims popping up on cigarette labels. By the 1930s, cigarettes touted to users that they were good for you. It sounds strange, but cigarette makers created a brilliant loophole. By saying their products protected against symptoms like coughs and scratchy throats, they convinced their customers that smoking couldn't be the cause. Take R.J. Reynolds. The company paid doctors to claim that while some cigarettes bothered your throat, camels did not. 
Their cigarettes were fresh and smooth. There were even camel ads showing smiling doctors holding the packs to prove it. Then, Lucky Strike cigarettes followed suit. In 1930, the company ran ads claiming that more than 20,000 doctors said their cigarettes were less irritating. But it was a sham survey. The company's advertisers had bribed doctors by sending them cartons of Lucky Strikes before asking if they were less irritating than other cigarettes. It might sound outrageous to us now that so many physicians even accepted the gifts, but back then, enough of them smoked to successfully rig the results. In 1937, Marlboro maker Philip Morris got even more devious. They ran an ad in the Saturday Evening Post with an incredulous claim. Doctors thought Marlboro cigarettes actually improved throat irritation. Unsurprisingly, one very important detail was left off the ads, that the company paid doctors in cash to conduct this study. It was sponsored content disguised as objective science. Of course, not every doctor was as willing to play ball, especially after a bombshell 1938 medical study on the death rates of smokers. When the study's researcher, Dr. Raymond Pearl, presented his work in Chicago, even the New York Times took notice. And the paper didn't mince words about the renowned biologist's findings. The headline read, quote, tobacco called a life shortener. To be fair, there had been rumblings of tobacco's worrisome side effects for centuries. For example, England's King James I hated the stuff. In 1604, he wrote that it was dangerous for the brain and lungs. And in the U.S., a doctor named Samuel Green wrote in an 1836 article that it was responsible for lung disease. Thirteen years later, a Boston surgeon said that almost every patient he saw with gum, tongue, and lip cancer had a tobacco habit. But a lot of this was anecdotal, and there weren't conclusive studies to prove any of these side effects. Compared to the booming tobacco industry and its powerful advertising campaigns, these concerns failed to raise much alarm. Plus, in the early 1900s, cigarettes were still a new fad. Since lung cancer typically doesn't appear until years after smoking, it was too early to track how harmful they were on a large scale. But the truth caught up. While lung cancer was relatively rare in the 1930s, by the 1940s, things changed. Lung cancer death rates doubled. Oddly, some physicians weren't worried. At a medical lecture in 1934, when surgeon Richard Overholt urged 300 of his colleagues to caution their patients against smoking, he was laughed off the floor. He left the cigarette smoke-filled room unsuccessful. This was the same attitude that Ernst Winder, the medical student, was up against in 1950, when he and his mentor, Everts Graham, came out with their seminal research study. Their data indicated that 97% of the 600-plus lung cancer patients they surveyed were heavy smokers. Meanwhile, the disease was much rarer in participants who didn't smoke. It was the biggest research study on the subject of its time, and one of the first to link cigarettes with lung cancer. Even Dr. Graham quit smoking after gathering such conclusive findings. But it was too little, too late for the conversion. 
He eventually died in 1957 of lung cancer. Thanks to Dr. Graham's reputation and the undeniable data behind the effects of smoking, the tide finally began to turn against tobacco. The December 1952 issue of Reader's Digest ran a piece titled Cancer by the Carton, citing the Graham and Winder study connecting lung cancer to frequent smokers. It also reported that lung cancer deaths jumped tenfold from 1920 to 1948. Then, in November of 1953, Time magazine reported on a second study that Winder and Graham took on. Now, they'd go beyond just correlation. The researchers wanted to prove direct causation that cigarettes led to lung disease. Graham and Winder built a cigarette machine that mimicked human smoking habits. Then they extracted the sticky tar it produced and painted it on the backs of a group of test mice. Within a year, 58% of the rodents who were still alive got cancer. And within 20 months, less than a tenth of them were still surviving. According to Graham, quote, This is no longer merely a possibility. Our experiments have proved it beyond any doubt. The findings stirred panic. American tobacco executives were particularly distressed. After all, their product was largely responsible for the fact that in just 20 years, the lung cancer rate had doubled for women and quadrupled for men. But their concern was sales, not deaths. So on December 15, 1953, the CEOs of six of the biggest cigarette companies met in New York with the prominent public relations firm Hill & Knowlton. Their goal was to launch one united strategy, restore public confidence in cigarettes by casting doubt on the science. It seems unfathomable now, but Big Tobacco had the money to make it look convincing. Less than a month later, by early January of 1954, numerous companies pooled together $1.2 million, about $12 million today, to create a group known as the Tobacco Industry Research Committee. Their first order of business was to run a two-page ad in more than 400 newspapers. A frank statement to cigarette smokers reached 43 million readers, and the ad cast a wide shadow of doubt on Winder and Graham's work. Not only did it claim their study wasn't conclusive, the ad even went so far as to state that smoking hadn't been proven to cause lung cancer. In other words, the companies lied, and sales only increased. From 1954 to 1961, the number of cigarettes sold annually jumped from 369 billion to 488 billion. Almost half of Americans used cigarettes in the 1960s because truthfully, they served a different purpose for everyone. Sometimes they were a status symbol in boardrooms. Masculine men liked them as a trademark. Other smokers relied on nicotine to curb their appetite, to lose weight. And of course, some people just wanted to look like famous movie stars who smoked on screen. People like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. All the while, the tobacco industry did its part to look like they were concerned with safety. Most brands launched filtered versions of their cigarettes, which they claimed siphoned out their products' harmful inhalants. Which was only partially true. Filters do block smokers from breathing in the largest pieces of tar, which are the cancer-causing fluids. 
but users still inhale hundreds of particles into their lungs, which can be just as harmful. In fact, research found that filters tend to encourage smokers to take deeper, longer puffs so they can inhale as much smoke as possible. The data suggests that, if anything, this made smokers consume even more nicotine. As a health safeguard, filters were nothing but an empty gesture. But as a marketing ploy, they helped tobacco companies hold on to their customer base, keeping old smokers hooked while luring in new ones with a false sense of security. By 1963, cigarettes reached peak popularity. The average adult smoked 4,345 of them that year, more than half a pack a day. But with lung cancer as the most common cancer diagnosed in American men, the nation couldn't deny it was grappling with a public health crisis. Coming up, the crackdown on big tobacco. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, back to the story. By 1964, various studies had put the writing on the wall. Smoking can kill you. So that January, the U.S. Public Health Service intervened. After consulting more than 7,000 articles, the U.S. Surgeon General's Office published a 386-page report on the risks of smoking. It concluded that smoking not only caused lung cancer, but also contributed to heart disease, laryngeal cancer, and bronchitis. According to the report, it was time for America to do something about the wide-ranging health risks. And wisely, the government heeded the call. Six months after the report, the Federal Trade Commission voted in favor of putting warning labels on cigarette packaging. By the early 1970s, more regulations had been established. Federal officials banned broadcast ads for cigarettes and mandated that airlines designate non-smoking areas. All the while, a steady stream of more Surgeon General reports came out, informing the public about smoking's miserable side effects. New mothers were alerted that their babies were at risk of pneumonia and other health issues if they smoked while pregnant. Even more crucially, smokers were reminded that their behavior spread beyond just them lighting up. Cigarette fumes were also harmful to those nearby. Secondhand smoke has more than 7,000 chemicals. According to the CDC, hundreds of those are toxic, and about 70 can cause cancer. Take the unfortunate tale of a man named Nathan Moose. He worked in a casino for 11 years, and because he constantly inhaled the fumes of patrons smoking nearby, 
he developed serious asthma. Nathan's lungs eventually deteriorated beyond repair. Despite never smoking himself, he died at 54 years old. Realizing that people like Nathan were in danger of a similar fate, throughout the 1970s, the U.S. government rang the alarm bells. And slowly, the warnings and regulations showed promise of working. In 1972, 43% of Americans smoked. Within five years, that number dropped to 36%. Death rates from lung cancer, however, kept climbing. It was irreversible, as older generations' cigarette habits caught up with them. The storm of bad press and wary customers finally hit the tobacco industry where it hurt most, their wallet. Would-be smokers didn't want to suffer the same fates they saw older smokers enduring. Companies felt they had to address all the growing health concerns or they'd suffer financially. They needed a new plan. Tony Garrett, the chair of Imperial Tobacco in the UK, took it upon himself to spearhead the effort in December of 1976. After dozens of phone calls, the following June, CEOs from the world's top cigarette manufacturers met at a secluded manor in Somerset, England. Their gathering had a specific mission, to figure out how to defeat the crusade against smoking. If they didn't collaborate, they feared the whole industry would become overregulated. By the end of the meeting, a strategy was set. Each company would launch its own campaigns to spread cigarette misinformation and downplay the health hazards of smoking. In other words, they hatched a conspiracy. By the 1970s, science had proven to most Americans that smoking caused lung cancer. But what the country wasn't prepared for was a massive propaganda campaign that also masqueraded as science. After their meeting, the new tobacco conglomerate created a front organization, eventually named the International Tobacco Information Center, or InfoTab. Its main goal was to undermine any public health initiatives that aimed to curb cigarette use. Borrowing from Big Tobacco's own playbook, InfoTab lobbyists were told to deny any links between smoking and diseases. And this group of companies went so far as to bankroll its own scientists and researchers who claimed to be experts. The organization encouraged them to downplay smoking's hazards by conducting misleading studies about secondhand smoke and other dangers. Which made it even more confusing as the real science kept trickling in. In the 1980s, a Surgeon General report announced that nicotine was addictive. Unsurprisingly, journalist Sandra Blakesley wrote in the New York Times Magazine about how it was a tougher habit to kick than heroin, cocaine, or speed. Scientists and journalists were desperate to stop the next generations from a grim fate. By 1984, lung cancer rates reached a new peak. There was a growing concern, particularly with a new group of smokers, because Big Tobacco had started recruiting children. Selling cigarettes to minors had limitless market potential in the eyes of industry executives. Big Tobacco caught the old adage, hook them while they're young, and ran with it. If the habit stuck, young smokers would stay with the product for decades. Starting in 1988, 
The cigarette manufacturer, R.J. Reynolds, launched a series of old Joe Camel ads. Teens were faced with ads of a cartoon, sunglass-clad camel strolling through Hollywood with a cigarette in his mouth. Joe Camel oozed a familiar devil-may-care attitude. And if you bought a pack, you'd also get coupons for Joe Camel-branded merch like T-shirts and baseball caps. Aggregated research from colleges nationwide soon found that camel sales spiked dramatically for kids 18 and under. In that youth market, they made more than $470 million in extra sales. And old Joe Camel's reach spanned younger than you might think. According to a study, six-year-old kids were just as familiar with the cigarette cartoon as they were with the Mickey Mouse logo for the Disney Channel. Adults were shocked. As a California congressman put it, the campaign was, quote, the moral equivalent of a national campaign to drive drunk, just for the fun of it. It was an eerie realization that America's cigarette culture was snowballing again. Simultaneously, kindergartners grew more familiar with Joe Camel, and deaths from smoking continued to rise. In 1988, Tobacco killed more than 430,000 Americans. What's more, treating every patient who came to the doctor with a cigarette-related illness proved costly. According to the New York Times, a congressional report found that $60 million a day were being spent treating the fatal illnesses related to smoking. State officials wanted the tobacco companies to pay up. In the 1990s, almost every U.S. state sued Big Tobacco, seeking money to compensate for the strain these diseases put on their public health systems. Mike Moore, Mississippi's attorney general at the time, said, quote, The lawsuit is premised on a simple notion. You cause the health crisis, you pay for it. The cigarette companies, for their part, were used to going to court. From 1954, around the time tobacco was first linked to cancer, to 1994, more than 800 plaintiffs filed suit. They alleged everything from false advertising to fraud. One of the industry's victims was a New Yorker named Rose Chipolone. Citing a long history of believing propaganda from cigarette makers, she blamed her smoking habit and failing health on their malicious marketing. Chipolone started smoking at 16 and kept smoking despite her husband Tony's pleas to quit. She just couldn't shake the habit and smoked through three of her pregnancies. Though she knew she was addicted, Chipolone was trapped in her two-pack-a-day habit. She developed a raspy cough and a nagging pain on the side of her neck. By 1981, Chipolone had lung cancer. The next year, her lung was surgically removed. Two years after that, she died in her husband's arms. Other horror stories took on Big Tobacco, too, sometimes from the industry's own backyard. David McLean was a Marlboro Man model who'd posed as one of the swashbuckling cowboys from the Philip Morris ads. McLean smoked cigarettes well before he worked for Marlboro, but according to his wife, he smoked as many as five packs a day while posing for a single commercial. His addiction grew... And soon, so did his health problems. McLean developed emphysema, a lung condition that makes it hard to breathe, in the late 1980s. He died of cancer at the age of 73. 
According to the lawsuit, McLean was addicted to nicotine long before cigarettes came with labels that warned how dangerous they are. And sadly, his death wasn't uncommon in the Marlboro Man tarnished legacy. As many as five models who appeared in the ads eventually died of smoking-related diseases. Even though the lawsuits mounted, tobacco companies often avoided the worst consequences, either by winning their cases or finding ways to get the suits dismissed. But by the mid-1990s, the cigarette baron's luck ran out. Thanks to Minnesota's Attorney General Hubert Humphrey III, Americans gained access to 35 million pages of secret incriminating documents. These papers exposed the industry's expansive conspiracy that had been mounting for decades. Not only did tobacco executives know their products caused cancer, they deliberately denied it to the public. Humphrey got these documents when he was in court with the cigarette companies to recoup some of his state's medical costs. But his team wanted the tobacco executives to reveal every document relevant to the case. And eventually, the companies had no choice but to comply. Six lawyers poured through the documents every day for years. When they finally finished, they sat on a gold mine of evidence. From the company's doctoring nicotine levels to deliberately deceptive marketing. With a clear paper trail, there was a pathway to more sweeping legal action. Starting in 1999, the Justice Department sued Philip Morris and other major tobacco companies on racketeering charges. They claimed that the cigarette manufacturers took part in a 50-year conspiracy to cover up the health risks of cigarettes. Seven years later, a district court judge found Big Tobacco guilty. But in the grand scheme of things, it remains a bittersweet victory. Many smokers are still trying to kick the habit, and countless Americans have lost friends or family members to tobacco use. The real atrocity is that tobacco manufacturers stacked the deck and didn't let their customers make fully informed choices. Similarly, this obscuring of the truth has bled into similar industries, like e-cigarettes. They've been marketed to young teens as a healthier alternative to smoking, but still contain nicotine and a slew of hazardous health effects. Public trust in science is essential, but as Big Tobacco's wanton cover-up shows, that trust can easily be eroded if a whole industry slings mud at facts. Join us next time as we dive deeper into three theories surrounding the tobacco industry's cover-up. Like conspiracy theory number one, cigarette companies knowingly and intentionally marketed their products to children. And conspiracy theory number two, tobacco manufacturers manipulated nicotine levels in their products to keep customers hooked. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, Cigarette companies lied about the science surrounding their products. The tobacco industry sold its customers on a fatal lie. So it's worth examining where the willingness to accept what looks like the truth ends and where the actual truth begins. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. 
We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jackson Knapp, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Coleman Gray. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.